Hello, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, February the 12th. We continue looking at this short letter from Paul to Philemon found in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters. And today we look at verses 8 through 11. And we've been talking about how the book of Philemon, and in many ways, is a book, is a letter about love. And very fitting, very apropos, as we're in February and approaching, of course, Valentine's Day. Issues of the heart, issues of love. And today we're going to look at the appeal of love found in verses 8 through 11. There was a man who was the mayor of a small town, and he'd been out campaigning all day long. But And by the time he had finished, he was starving, so he, he decided to kind of kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, and he, he stopped off at the local church who was having a fellowship meal. And as he was slowly moving down the line towards the food, he held out his plate to the woman who was serving chicken, and she kindly put a piece of chicken on his plate and went on to serve the next person in line. And the mayor said to the lady, excuse me, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? And the lady said, well, we're, we're serving one piece of chicken to everybody until everybody is served. And then the, if any is left over, then of course you can come back. And the mayor said to her, but, you know, I'm, I've been out campaigning all day long and I'm starving. And, and the lady said, I know, just, just one piece of chicken, you know. The mayor was modest, but... On this occasion, he decided to throw a little weight around. And so he said to the lady, do you know who I am? I'm the mayor of this town. And the lady looked at him and said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Now move along. Now, Paul knows exactly what it means to throw his authority around as the Apostle Paul. When he wrote to the church in Galatia, for example, he begins by reminding them in Galatians 1, I, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. But when he writes to his friend Philemon, he doesn't use this apostolic authority. He simply calls himself uh, Philemon, in one one, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And today he's going to make an appeal of love on behalf of Onesimus, who was Philemon's runaway slave. Now, remember, he's just finished telling Philemon that his love for for all of the other believers and his faith in Christ has given Paul and other Christians a lot of joy and and a lot of encouragement. And so because his love is refreshing the hearts of the believers, he goes on to say in Philemon verse 8 through 11, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. You see, as a Christ-sent apostle, Paul could have commanded Philemon to carry out the request that he made in this letter. Paul knows the character of Philemon, and so he He sees no need to command him to do anything. That word appeal, it's interesting. In in the Greek, uh, is is the Greek word um, parakilio, and it means to urgently ask for mercy. 
And so by appealing to Philemon on the basis of love, Paul knows that greater results are going to happen. In other words, Paul, you, based on Philemon's love for Paul, Paul is urging him to make the right actions and have mercy on Onesimus. By the time Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, he's, he's an older man and probably uh, we would assume at least in his late 60s, if not older. And, and now in real terms, that's not old, of course, and especially the older I get, the more I realize how young that actually is. Um, but when we think about his life and the, the toils, the hardships he's been through, it shouldn't surprise us that he, he's probably got a few wrinkles on his face, his head's balding. And knowing the great friendship that between Paul and Philemon, we could possibly imagine Paul maybe even having a smile on his face as he wrote these words to this longtime friend, Philemon, with whom he'd shared a lot of experiences. So here's a great question. When someone has caused us a great deal of pain in the past, how do we feel when we meet them again? Well, I imagine we would feel incredibly uneasy around them. I would imagine, right, we would try to avoid them as much as we can. We might even want to bring up the past just to remind them of what they did to us. It's like the little girl who was good for an entire week, and so she asked her mom for, for some sweets for a treat. And the little girl's mom said, I know you've been good this week, but you were kind of bad last week. And the little girl said, oh, mommy, you're, you're nothing like God. When he forgives, he doesn't keep bringing it up. But how much, how would we feel if we knew that the very person who caused us so much pain was now a Christian? And how would we feel if they turn up on our doorstep and, and want to be there for, for good? Remember, Paul hasn't mentioned Onesimus by name yet through this handwritten letter. And remember, they, they didn't, it's not the postal system like we have today. It's, it's not email. There's, there's no postman going door to door posting letters through people's mailboxes. The, this letter was hand-delivered, and it was hand-delivered by Onesimus himself. And so can you imagine what was going through Philemon's mind when, when Onesimus turns up at his door? You know, he could have turned Onesimus away. In fact, because Onesimus was, was, strict, was legally still a slave, Philemon could have put him in either in prison or even to death. He might have become angry. He might have lashed out at him. But let's look at why he didn't do that. You know, when Onesimus turns up at Philemon's house, he had the very letter that we're studying right now. And before he made any decisions relating to Onesimus, he read the letter first. Because, you see, when we receive a letter from authority, from anyone in authority, we take time and read it carefully. An apostle is a special messenger of Jesus, a person who Jesus gave authority to for certain tasks. And now there was a time when Paul's claim to be an apostle, apostle excuse me, was questioned by others. But remember, he received a different calling as to be an apostle. And when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and spoke directly to him, Jesus gave him the authority to be an apostle. But when Paul wrote to his dear friend Philemon, he didn't write it as an apostle, this person in um, authority. He didn't write it uh, as braggadocious, but rather as a loving and a caring brother in Jesus. And that's why he, he said in Philemon 8 through 9, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. And then as Paul, this old man, and now a prisoner in Christ Jesus. And in fact, Paul is saying, Philemon, Please don't consider the appeal that I'm about to make as an order. It isn't that, but it's an earnest and it's an honest plea from one brother to another. 
But why didn't Paul give Philemon a command concerning Onesimus? Because I'm sure if he did, Philemon would have easily, well, maybe not easily, but he would have carried out the command. But why didn't he command him? I think we want, I want this letter of Philemon to be an indictment um, against the vials and the evil of slavery. And at the heart of the letter, um, it's not that slavery isn't vile and evil. We know that. Uh, the appeal here and, and the letter is about love and it's about reconciliation and it's about the cross being a leveler, a level playing field, despite whatever social mores and context we may be living in whenever we're living in them. And so the answer has to do with the fact that Philemon was a slave owner, but not just any slave, now a Christian slave. See, if any apostle had written a commandment for, for, the, for Christian slave owners to free their slaves, the whole attitude toward Christianity with regard, uh, with regard to the despicable and inhumane and evil institution of slavery would have, would have been changed. Persecutions were, were already looming and coming. They were coming. And this would have been a thousand times more vindictive and destructive. So slaves by the thousands would have accepted, quote-unquote, Christianity, whether they were converted or not, because of a command, and a revolution would have been triggered. So Paul was careful not to command anything of Philemon, but he wanted Philemon to do what was right because it is right. He wanted him to do it the way the Lord would have done it. The message translations say this in Philemon's 8-9, through As Christ's ambassador and now a prisoner for him, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it was necessary, but I'd rather make it a personal request. He's basically saying, listen, Philemon, I have a favor to ask of you. Now, I could use the authority Christ has given me, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to make this a personal request. And it's because of his loving and caring approach that Paul can go on to say, Onesimus is here at your house because I sent him. He was preaching. He was practicing what he preached. He was reminding Philemon of what it means to be a Christian, to be a believer. In Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, notice in that Galatians 6.10 doesn't say do good to some people. There are some people we would drop everything for in a moment's notice. And there are other people we would do something for if and when it suits us. And But the text says do good to all people, but especially your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that includes the man who caused you pain years ago. That includes the woman who decided to walk out on you and your family. That includes your spouse who endlessly puts you down. That includes the person who has never got anything positive to say. And that includes Onesimus, who has done his master some harm. And that includes Philemon, who owned slaves in the first place. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so Paul, driven by the love of God, goes on to say in Philemon 10-11, through 11, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. You can only imagine Philemon pausing here as he read the name Onesimus. We can imagine him looking at Onesimus and thinking to himself, I remember when you first became my slave. He, he very well could have bought Onesimus at the slave market. 
where they would auction slaves off and someone would buy them for, for, for a certain amount of money. And how did Onesimus become a slave? Well, he became a slave in one of a couple of different ways historically at this, at this point in time. If Onesimus's father was a slave and Onesimus was born into that family, he would become Philemon's property. The owner could sell him, do whatever he wanted to with him. If Onesimus was a thief who stole money and under Jewish and even Roman law, if he stole and couldn't pay back, then Philemon can take Onesimus as a slave. If Onesimus was a murderer, but instead of killing him, they would decide to give him to the victim's family and the victim could take him or sell him or do whatever they liked. We don't know how Onesimus became Philemon's slave, but we do know this much. Onesimus had no rights whatsoever. In the vile institution of slavery, he was a piece of property and Philemon owned him. Now, Paul often referred to himself as a father. We saw that when he wrote to Timothy and says in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And now when Paul uses this language, he's using a Hebrew metaphor. The Jewish Talmud says, if one teaches the son of his neighbor the law, the scriptures reckon this is the same as if he had begotten him. So in other words, if you've ever brought someone to Jesus in a sense, you've become their father, their mother. And when he says, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains, well, what he means is when he was in prison, he met Onesimus, and he had the blessing of converting him to Christianity. Now, we don't know how and when this happened, but it happened. And so Paul, like a child who is loved by his father in heaven, shared the same loving kindness with Onesimus, that kind of love that goes beyond understanding, that, that's the kind of love that's so willing to forgive wrongs, our wrongs, that kind of love that can change a person from the inside out. That's the kind of love that can make the useless useful. And that's what the gospel can do. It can take people whom the world thinks are useless and make them useful. It can take someone like me who did nothing but take all my life and help me to give. It can take a marriage that's going nowhere and heading for disaster and give it new direction, a new life, and a purpose. It can take a runaway slave like Onesimus, who is legally and in the world's eyes considered completely useless, back to his master, Philemon, and make him useful. Do you know what the name Onesimus means? It means useful. Now, Paul is using a play on words here. He says in Philemon 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. In other words, at one time, Onesimus wasn't living up to his name, but now he is. That word useful is the same word which Paul uses to describe how God uses the useless in 2 Timothy 2.21. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And see, friends, that's exactly what Jesus has done with all of us. He wants to take what the world calls useless people and make them useful for his kingdom. Remember remember in Mark 1 when Jesus healed the man with leprosy? Jesus said to him in Mark 1, 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. In John 5, where Jesus heals the paralytic man who had been a paralytic for 38 years, Jesus says in John 5, 6, pick up your mat and walk. 
You see, Jesus always changes the people who the world thought were hopeless and useless, and he changes them to be useful for his kingdom. And if we're not a believer this morning, if we're not a Christian, then let me say this. We're indwelt with with a soul that's going to last far beyond death. We're created in the image of God, and in God's eyes, we're valuable to him. In fact, we're so valuable to him that he sent his one and only son to die on a tree for us, as John 3.16 says. And that's why Jesus came, so he could take hopeless and useless people like me and like you and reconcile us back to God. And when we become a Christian, when we become a believer, we're not just useful and helpful to some people. No, we're helpful and useful to all people. So notice what Paul says in Philemon 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Onesimus was not only useful to Paul, but also to Philemon. Paul has built up this relationship with Onesimus, and he was helping Paul share the gospel. And when we have someone like Jesus in common, we're going to get attached to that person very easily because we have common goals. We have many things in common, a common love for each other, a common gift for, for, to the Savior, a common bond holding us to, the, to Jesus, a common strength when we're tired, a common hope for tomorrow, a common joy in the truth of God's word. And when we have these things in common, we don't want to run away and hide anymore. We want to go and meet brothers and sisters in Jesus. We want, we were on the, when we're on the run, we don't want to be found. And the best place to go is to a city where there are lots of people. And that's what Onesimus did. He ran away to Rome, but even when he thought nobody knew where he was, God did. Let me tell you about someone else who tried to run away. Remember Hagar, she slept with Abraham and, and Sarah wasn't happy. So Hagar ran away as far as she could from them. And then in Genesis 16, 7, 9, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Hagar tried to run away from her problems just like Onesimus did. But when we have an encounter with the, with the Lord, we can be sure that he might ask us to go somewhere where it's difficult to go. God might ask us to go somewhere, but God doesn't send us alone. Hagar went back to Abraham and Sarah, but this time she had God with her. And not only did she have God with her, but she also had something in common with Abraham and Sarah. She know, now knows the God of Abraham and Sarah, just like they do. And when we know God like that, we have everything in common with like-minded people. And so Onesimus goes back to Philemon, not only with the promise that every single child, not every, every single person of God has got today, which is, according to Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, but Onesimus can go back in the knowledge that his master Philemon was now his brother in Christ. And that's a whole lot to have in common. <laughs> Paul, who loved Philemon, but also loved Onesimus, wanted nothing but the best for the two of them. So he was trying to help them both out. He's trying to help Philemon see that this runaway slave is now his brother in Jesus, and he can be very useful in sharing the gospel with others. He has a purpose to his life. It's a life of value. He is valuable. He is not just property. Now, we don't know what Onesimus did. But Paul says in Philemon 18 through 19, if he's done any, if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, then charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. 
Now we're going to deal with that text a little more in depth later uh, in, in, a, in a week or two. But do we see what Paul is doing here? Notice that Paul is doing two things for Onesimus. Paul was willing to, first of all, was willing to appeal for mercy on behalf of him. There are going to be times in our life and our life, walk with Jesus when we need help. There are going to be times when we need someone to speak up for us. If we ever get in trouble with the law, we're going to want the best defense that we can, right? But as believers, we already have the best defense lawyer we could ever have. Even after we become Christians and we sin, we need someone who will constantly ask for mercy on our behalf. And his name is Jesus. 1 John 2, 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, what do you think Jesus is saying to the Father, to God the Father? I I can imagine Jesus saying to the Father, let me speak to you on behalf of Alan. You know, he's messed up a couple times today. And that was even before he got out of bed without even knowing it. But Father, I know you understand his circumstances. Please have mercy on him. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. Aren't we glad that Jesus speaks up for us when we sin? Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. As a lawyer woke up in the hospital after surgery, he asked, why are all the blinds drawn in here? And the nurse answered, there's a fire across the street and we didn't want you to think that the operation had been a failure. You can think about that and maybe you'll get it later on in the day. But Satan accuses us all day long of being sinners and he's right. He's the father of lies, and he's good at it. But our defense lawyer, Jesus, takes the stand and proclaims that we're not guilty. And he does that so we don't have to go through our lives in fear of hell. He wants us to know that his work on the cross didn't fail. And so when Paul says to Philemon in verses 18 and 19, if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, then charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back. He wasn't only willing to speak up for Onesimus, but secondly, Paul was willing to take the punishment that Onesimus deserved. Paul is basically saying to Philemon, I know Onesimus is a criminal and deserves punishment. Yet this slave is my friend, so if you punish him, you're punishing me too. Paul is saying, Philemon, I'm standing beside Onesimus to take his punishment. Now, why was Paul willing to take to do that? Well, in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul was willing to take Onesimus' punishment because he knew what that's exactly what Christ did for him. We all need the man with the scarred hands. We all need the man whose blood completely washes our sin away. We all need the man who can make us useful. We all need Jesus. And when we have Christ speaking for us, does it matter what anyone else thinks? Does it matter if our family think we're weird because we want to follow Jesus? Does it matter if those around us today don't really care about spiritual things at all? It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about us. All that matters is what does Christ think about us? 
And now when we have now, and when we think about it, how can Jesus give an opinion about us if he doesn't know us on a relationship basis? Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not drive out the demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will plain, tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus died for the righteous and the unrighteous, we might even say. He died for the useless and for the useful. Will we come to Jesus and let him love us and forgive our sins? Will we let him appeal for mercy to the Father on our behalf? Will we be reconciled today? Amen. And God bless.